a young couple possibly traveling across the United States, are found murdered on a country road in South Carolina in 1976. Their identities remain a mystery. Who are Jock and Jane Doe? A man described as wearing a magic hat abducted four-year-old Jessica Gutierrez from her bed in 1986. Where is Jessica and who abducted her? Malakia Logan disappeared only yards away from her apartment complex in 1990, and her murderer has eluded authorities even though they have a strong suspicion of who he is. A young business owner is murdered in her hair salon, and it takes more than 10 years for the man responsible to be captured. But is he also responsible for the disappearance of one of his missing girlfriends? And finally, a young woman meets an older man while on the rebound, but he soon turns out to have a drug problem and an abusive personality. Where has Lisa Myers Nugent been since 1999? In episode 12, I took a look at some North Carolina cases that were featured on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. Because I uncovered so many interesting stories the last time, I decided to go ahead and dive into cases in South Carolina that listeners may be interested in, along with any updates that have happened since the original airing. Join me today to learn more. There are a number of missing persons cases right here in the Carolinas, and some have received more media attention than others. These are the stories that tug at our heartstrings, make us pray it never happens to anyone in our families, and wonder if there is still any way to find closure for these missing persons and their loved ones. I'm Renee Robertson. Please join me for Missing in the Carolinas. Episode number 14, South Carolina Cases That Were Featured on Unsolved Mysteries. The case of Jock and Jane Doe was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on January 20th, 1995. The couple, also known as the Sumter County Does, were discovered in August of 1976 in Sumter, South Carolina, on a rural road by a trucker passing through. They had both been shot multiple times. They both appeared to be in their 20s, with the man measuring six feet tall and the woman about five feet, five inches. The man had extensive dental work and was wearing an expensive watch and a ring inscribed with the initials JPF. He was estimated to be between 18 and 30 years of age. The woman had brown hair and blue or green eyes with two distinct moles on the left side of her face. She was wearing two rings that were either handmade Mexican or Native American. They both had skin that had olive undertones, so investigators initially believed they might be siblings. That was later ruled out after DNA testing. When they were found, they had no money on them, only their jewelry and clothing. An autopsy revealed they had eaten either fruit or ice cream in the hours before their deaths. One witness thought they had seen the couple at a fruit stand located off the Florence Highway. But this witness couldn't recall whether they had been with anyone at the time or if they had arrived in a car. A few months after they were found, another witness came forward and said he remembered the couple from when they had stayed at a KOA campground in Santee, South Carolina. This witness recalled the man had said his name was Jock, which was likely more like Jacques. He told the employee at the campground that he was the son of a prominent Canadian doctor who had disowned him for not following through with his medical studies. He was on an extended vacation with his girlfriend. They left after a few days to head down to Florida, 
then stopped back by the campground on their way back through South Carolina. He had tried to pawn an expensive ring to the employee, and it matched the description of the ring Jock was found wearing with the initials. Investigators really do seem like they have chased down every lead they could think of to identify this couple, who were discovered the year I was born. And it makes me sad. According to the details found on their pages on the Doe Network site, they fingerprinted the man and woman. They looked at the serial number on the watch to try and determine where it was purchased. They shared the details of the couple with Interpol, immigration officials, and made contact with authorities in Argentina, Uruguay, Brazil, and in the Mediterranean. Investigators strongly believed the couple had been hitchhiking across the country when they were murdered, or perhaps were carjacked somewhere along the way. When he was found, Jock Doe had a pack of matches in the pocket of his blue jeans that were only sold at a truck stop chain located in the states of Idaho, New Mexico, and Nebraska. In 2007, the bodies were exhumed by the Sumter County Sheriff's Office and samples were retrieved that have been submitted into the state, national, and international DNA databases. As for who killed Jane and Jock Doe, one suspect was mentioned on the Unsolved Mysteries official fan page. A South Carolina man was arrested in 1977 for driving while intoxicated. A gun located in his possession was later determined to be the murder weapon that killed Jane and Jock Doe through ballistics testing. The owner of the gun denied any involvement, and due to a lack of corroborating evidence, he was never charged with the crime. I wasn't able to find any further information on possible suspects. Anyone with information on this case is asked to contact the Sumter County Sheriff's Office at 803-436-2002. Next up is the disappearance of Jessica Gutierrez from Lexington, South Carolina. Her story was featured on Unsolved Mysteries on January 24, 1990. On June 6, 1986, four-year-old Jessica was sharing a bed with her older sister, who was six at the time, in the family's mobile home. When Jessica's mother, Deborah, woke up the next morning, she went into the girls' room to wake them up. She found her older daughter, school papers littered all over the floor, and no Jessica. The front door was also open, and the family's dog, who normally slept outside, was inside the house. Curtains had also been ripped off one of the windows. When Deborah questioned Becky, she told her mother that a man with a magic hat and a beard had taken Jessica out of the bed sometime during the night. She had been too afraid to call out for help when it happened and eventually fell back asleep. Jessica's father was separated from Deborah and he lived on the West Coast at the time, which the police confirmed. One suspect in Jessica's disappearance was an ex-boyfriend of Deborah Gutierrez. She had broken things off with him because of possessive behavior and alcohol abuse just days before Jessica vanished in the night. Police questioned him, but he was never charged. According to an article I found in the state newspaper, a family acquaintance stole a van in Lexington County, drove it to North Carolina, and sexually assaulted a woman there. He was charged in the crime and later sent to prison. While this man was in prison, he allegedly told his cellmate that he had kidnapped a little girl in Lexington County while wearing what he called a tall cowboy hat. He told the cellmate he buried the little girl in a landfill in Lexington County, prompting a search of a landfill near the Gutierrez home. Nothing was ever found. 
The cellmate offered to testify against this family acquaintance in exchange for immunity, but the deal was denied. In the article I mentioned above, a representative for the Lexington County Sheriff's Department said they had reviewed all the evidence supplied by the informant, but didn't feel they had sufficient enough evidence to proceed with the case. The only evidence investigators found at the Gutierrez home following the kidnapping was a set of fingerprints found on a windowsill in the living room, which is apparently where the intruder entered the home. These fingerprints were matched to the family acquaintance who was convicted of sexually assaulting the woman in North Carolina. Deborah Gutierrez has told reporters in the past that she believes her ex-boyfriend and the family acquaintance actually knew each other and may have worked together to abduct Jessica. Jessica Suzanne Gutierrez would now be 38 years old. Her mother is still holding out hope that she is alive. She had brown hair and brown eyes at the time of her disappearance and a small scar on her upper forehead and a small brown birthmark on her right buttock. Anyone with information involving this case should contact the Lexington County Sheriff's Office at 803-359-8230. Next up is the story of eight-year-old Malachia Logan, also known as Kia to her family and friends. Her case was featured on the show on January 24, 1990, along with that of Jessica Gutierrez. On May 15, 1988, Malakia and her sister were playing basketball with a friend at a local park near their apartment complex in Greenwood, South Carolina. As the sun started to set, Kia decided to head back home on her bicycle. It was only about 300 yards away from where they were playing. But when her sister followed behind just a few minutes later, she found Kia's bicycle abandoned in the parking lot and Kia was nowhere in sight. When police canvassed the area, they heard from witnesses that a white male in his mid-30s or early 40s driving a 1981 dark blue or black Chevrolet Monte Carlo had been seen in the area shortly before Kia disappeared. The Greenwood County Sheriff's Department quickly announced a $2,000 reward leading to information for Kia's whereabouts, but searches turned up nothing. In the fall of 1990, hunters came across a skull in the U.S. National Forest in nearby Newberry County and alerted authorities. While they suspected the skull belonged to Kia, because they could locate no other remains nearby, she couldn't be positively identified at the time. With the help of advancements in DNA testing, the skull was positively identified in 1997 as belonging to Kia. But because only her skull was found, a cause of death could not be determined. In 2002, while serving time on Peeping Tom charges, a 50-year-old man named Charles Wade Hampton was charged with murder, abduction, and sexual misconduct in Kia's case. Her family hoped to finally have closure after Kia's disappearance. He was officially charged after confessing to Kia's murder and the murders that took place in Georgia and in Columbia, South Carolina. But later on, DNA testing did not connect him with the Georgia murder case. Unfortunately, charges against Hampton in the Kia Logan case were dropped in 2007. Solicitor Jerry Peace announced that the confession from Hampton was false and there was no direct evidence tying him to Kia's murder. Peace admitted the details of Hampton's confession seemed feasible, but also said they couldn't verify his account of what happened to Kia without any hard evidence. 
He confessed to obstruction of justice charges instead and was eventually released from prison. To this day, Kia's murder and the details surrounding her disappearance remain a mystery. Before we continue with the show, let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. If you like writing fiction, you should consider entering one of the contests over at WOW Women on Writing. The deadline for the latest contest is November 30th, so you have plenty of time to work on your entry. This specific contest will have 20 winners and prizes that include publication on the WOW site, cash prizes, and Amazon gift cards. A flash fiction story I wrote based on the disappearance of a young man in North Carolina was a runner-up in the contest back in 2012. It's called In the Depths if you ever want to check it out. It's linked over on the Missing in the Carolinas website. First place in this contest wins $400. WOW allows a maximum of 300 entries. You can also purchase a critique to get more feedback on your writing, which I highly recommend. Learn more at wow-womenonwriting.com and click on the contest tab. I'd like to talk about Dana Satterfield next. Unsolved Mysteries first aired the story about her murder on May 16, 1997. Dana Satterfield was a 27-year-old mother of two who had recently separated from her husband. She owned and operated a hair salon in Roebuck, South Carolina. On the evening of July 31, 1995, Dana was finishing up her day of appointments when she met with a woman selling cleaning products door-to-door. According to the woman, Dana purchased some cleaning fluid, and then the woman left to go try her luck at a few other local homes. When she returned to the salon's parking lot a few hours later to wait for her ride, she noticed Dana's car was still in the parking lot. While she stood there, she heard a loud commotion inside the mobile home Dana used to operate the salon, and then she saw the lights go out. Minutes later, to her surprise, a young man jumped out of a window and ran in the opposite direction. The saleswoman saw the whole thing and was scared, but also worried for Dana, so she ran to a nearby liquor store to call for help. Unfortunately, she ran right into the man she saw jumping out of the window. She then headed to a nearby house to encourage the homeowners to call the police. When they arrived, they discovered Dana Satterfield had been beaten, sexually assaulted, and then strangled. They worked with the saleswoman and another motorist driving by the salon at the time on a composite of the suspect. They questioned Dana's husband, Mike, but he didn't match the description on the suspect sketch, and their divorce had been amicable giving him no motive to murder Dana. Right before Dana's death, a local high school student named Jonathan Vick told a friend named David Pace that he was going to go to the hair salon to meet with Dana. His friend laughed it off, thinking there was no way a 27-year-old woman like Dana would be interested in Jonathan Vick. After news of her murder broke, Jonathan told David not to tell anyone he had been planning to visit her that evening. He revealed nothing else. David felt guilty and tried to call the police to leave anonymous tips three different times, but Jonathan was never questioned about the murder. Finally, in 2005, David had a chance encounter with Dana's daughter Ashley, then 18 years old, at a gas station where he worked. She resembled her mother so much that he began feeling guilty that he knew who was probably responsible for her murder. He went back to the police with more information, and this time he gave his name. Investigators discovered Jonathan matched the description in the composite drawing of the suspect and drove a car just like the one the motorist had seen near the salon that night. Once investigators obtained a DNA sample from Jonathan, they discovered it matched with the semen found at the crime scene. 
In 2006, Jonathan Vick was sentenced to life in prison for the rape and murder of Dana Satterfield. Because he was 17 years old at the time of the crime, he was not eligible for the death penalty. He maintains his innocence. But here's the thing. Another young woman went missing in South Carolina in 2002, and she had direct ties to Jonathan Vick. Her name was Heather Sellers, and if you put her photo next to Dana Satterfield's, they could be sisters. She was engaged to Jonathan, and her family reported he had been abusive towards her, prompting her to break off the engagement. On September 24, 2002, she reported for work at the Waffle House. She had planned to spend the night at an aunt's house that evening after her shift and went over there. Shortly after she arrived, Jonathan picked her up and she agreed to go out with him. Her family never heard from Heather again. Investigators were never able to link him directly to any crime because Heather's body has never been found. In 2005, he was arrested and tried for Dana's murder. In 2006, investigators searched an abandoned car of Jonathan's and found blood and blonde hair inside. They've never confirmed if the hair and blood belonged to Heather, and he still maintains his innocence, leaving her family frustrated that he may have gotten away with yet another murder. Unsolved Mysteries also featured Lisa Myers Nugent, a young woman who went missing from South Carolina sometime around Labor Day, 1999. The episode aired on August 19, 2002. This is one of those cases that's frustrating because no one is sure of the exact timeline that Lisa went missing, and all the evidence is completely circumstantial. Lisa had married young and found herself in an abusive relationship. After leaving that marriage, she soon met a man named Frank Isley, who was about seven years her senior. All seemed to go well at first, and she moved in with him at his home in Conway, South Carolina. She helped him at his family's business, which provided painting and other odd jobs for area residents. But she reportedly told her parents, who were living in North Carolina at the time, that Frank had become heavily addicted to drugs. He was also possessive and controlling. Her parents visited Lisa and Frank on Labor Day weekend in 1999. Frank was acting erratically and didn't return back to the house one night. Lisa shared that he was probably out buying and using drugs. Her parents begged her to ride back home with them to Summerfield, North Carolina, which she did. They talked things over with her and felt like she had made the decision to break things off with Frank. But not long after arriving at her parents' house, Frank showed up and convinced Lisa to leave with him. He talked her into driving to a resort in Cherry Grove Beach, South Carolina, where he had a contract job. The Myers family never heard from Lisa again. Frank apparently called one of Lisa's friends during this time and told her Lisa had left the resort with their dog and $1,200 in cash. When Lisa's mother, Brenda Myers, tried to contact authorities in Conway, they ran into roadblocks because she was an adult and they had no reason to suspect foul play. Frank evaded the police department's attempt to question him about Lisa's whereabouts. Also, Hurricane Floyd hit the South Carolina coast around that same time, leaving the police department with limited resources to investigate. When they visited Frank and Lisa's home a few weeks later, they found it deserted and empty. A landlord told them Frank had moved out weeks before. Frank eventually left town and was arrested for burglary and drug possession charges in Florida, but fled before he could go to trial. He was finally arrested in October of 2005 in New Mexico and extradited back to South Carolina for charges of failing to pay child support. 
Lisa has never been found with him, and he has never admitted to knowing where she is. Authorities still consider him a person of interest. At the time of her disappearance, Lisa Myers Nugent was 5 feet 5 inches tall, weighed about 160 pounds, and had brown eyes and brown hair. She also had a tattoo of a wizard with a shooting star on her right shoulder. Anyone with information on her whereabouts or knowledge of what happened to her is asked to call the Horry County Police Department at 843-248-1521. This brings us to the conclusion of this week's episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please do me a favor and give it a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're also now on Instagram and Facebook, so please like our pages and get started on a discussion of the missing people profiled on the show. If you want to visit my blog and read more about true crime cases from all over the country, including the ones featured here, visit missinginthecarolinas.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, WOW Women on Writing, and the great programs and writing contests they have to support writers at wow-womenonwriting.com. Cover art for this podcast was designed by Macintosh Multimedia. All episodes are researched and written by me, Renee Robertson, with sound editing provided by Mia Robertson.